32:36 through 42. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Thank you very much. All right, good morning. Survived another trip around the sun. As I enter into my Clooney years, I'd like to thank everyone who's stuck with me. Okay. Um, All right. Obviously, we're not in Matthew today. Uh, We've been on a 67-sermon rampage through the book of Matthew. And uh, pretty much... uh, And... uh, and, and we'll continue through that. October is going to be a little different. Today I'm talking about baptism because the last Sunday of this month we are doing our baptism service and I would like to invite you into that. I want to sort of explain what baptism is. I mean, if you, a lot of you didn't grow up in a church and you're confused on what exactly this whole thing is, um, I'm hopefully going to lay that out for you this morning, what that is. And um, what else? Next week we're back in Matthews. The week after next week, um, so I got a call. We're a part of a denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance. It's like 120 years old. It goes back a long ways. And um, I got a call from like the heads of the Christian Missionary Alliance. They were like, hey, the president of the denomination worldwide is coming through Tampa, and he wants to come to Watermark and speak. I'm like, first off, why? <laughs> um, so they're intrigued by you guys and what you're doing here, um, as am I. Um, and so we're, <laughs> we're here. So we are going to take him, uh, so, uh, that morning he's going to come and, and, and he wants to meet you guys and he wants to talk to you guys, an incredible guy who's, who's done, in, taken part in incredible work, um, very passionate person. And so uh, it's going to be a break from the norm. Um, however, that doesn't mean you sleep in and then go bowling in the morning or whatever you do. You come to church, all right? I know, I know what happens when I leave. That's why I don't tell you I'm going on vacation. Come to church. Um, and worship with us, and we'll have the band a little bit louder, and we're going to show them what's up, all right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, come. It's going to be amazing. And then the week after that, we'll have our baptism service. The whole room will be reset in a big circle, and uh, it's going to be a moving experience. Um, and so we're going to hear about what God's been doing in the lives of, of your brothers and sisters all around you, and it's going to be great. So uh, let's talk about baptism, shall we? I'll open us up with prayer, and we'll jump into this. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this place and these people. Guide our time this morning. Awaken us. Open our eyes to what you're doing. Allow us to take part in it. Allow us to see things in a new way that we haven't seen before. Give us a piece of the puzzle that has been missing. Um, I lift up all those who are in fear, all those who are in mourning of some kind. I ask that you would comfort them and give them peace. I lift up all those who are questioning, who are doubting, um, who are on a journey of their own, I ask that you would let them know that you are present with them walking through this thing. 
Um, I lift up all those who are in a place of joy. I ask that you would uh, help us to see them and rejoice with them. Um, Bind us all together. Um, Lay the future out before us and help us to move towards it. Thank you, Father. Amen. Okay, so we started off with this passage today. This is a fascinating passage to me. It's Peter, and Peter is, is delivering a sermon to a whole group of Jewish men and women um, who have experienced this interesting thing of seeing the apostles um, on the day of Pentecost, and they are, um, there's all kinds of interesting works being done, and it, it's just there's something new happening. Peter stands up in the middle of this whole um, sort of crowd of Jewish people, and he delivers this sermon, and it's a brilliant sermon, and it basically goes through the history of Israel. These are, it's a fully Jewish audience. He goes through the history of their people, and he points out all the amazing things that have happened, and he says all of this has led up to one thing, the fact that the risen Jesus, whom you crucified, is now the Lord and King of all. And there's this call um, to understand and to see and to recognize this thing that they did not know, that they did not expect, and they have not seen before. And then there's this question, because some people step up after hearing this, and they're like a little bit enlightened. And they say, well, what do we do then? After hearing this brand new thing that we've never understood, we've never grasped, and perhaps you've been here, you've you've received some information that you haven't had before. And there's this sort of, what do I do with this? What does this mean? What do I do now? And Peter, let me underline this for you. Peter looks at them and says, what do you do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, um, oftentimes we... In modern language, and we're just reading this in English, in modern language, the phrase, um, do this for this, has, in a capitalist society, has a monetary sort of uh, feeling, like an exchange, right? We look at everything through the lens of give and receive. Um, In the first century, it was a totally different thing. Um, However, today, we kind of look at it as like, I've got five bucks, you've got a shirt, and I want the shirt, and so I'm going to give you the five bucks for the shirt, okay? Okay. And I can't just have the shirt for free, and I can't just take the shirt, because then the cops will come, it'll be awkward. Um, so I have to give you something to receive this. And so oftentimes we read the scriptures through a modern capitalistic society lens, and we say, oh, in order to receive the forgiveness of sins, we have to be baptized. And if you don't do one, you don't get the other, because that's how exchanges work. And in theory, that makes a lot of sense. However, in practice, in the scriptures, in context, that that is not what the original think, uh, writers of Scripture and the original people present in this sermon were thinking about. Um, they're thinking about this much, dif- much, uh, much more different than that. Um, the phrase, the, the simple Greek word for is this, is this word ice. And when you look up this word um, in the Greek, it has a lot heavier meaning than just a monetary exchange. Okay, it, It's something... Um, that you do in light of something. It's something you do in response to. It is, a, it is a method of receiving something. We don't really have necessarily an English simple, small little word to stick in there. Um, it sometimes is used to, to speak of in celebration of something. It is something that you do because something else is happening. Okay? It is a, sort of a response. It is in light of the forgiveness of God that you have been offered. In light of that, I'm going to do this. In light of what I see. So they're asking Peter, what then should we do? There's a new thing that we have seen. And what are we supposed to do with this? How do we respond to this? And in the Jewish mindset, you respond with a religious ritual. In light of forgiveness that that is being offered to you. 
you should repent and be baptized. Baptism was already a thing. It's not like a brand new thing that Peter's giving them. As we move forward this morning, as we go through this passage, um, uh, and as we talk more about baptism, you're going to see that this was already a thing that they were practicing. And it was something that they would do regularly. Um, and so Paul, uh, Peter's looking at them and saying, that thing you do um, to, to celebrate and receive and take part in this other thing, we're going to do that again and we're going to do it for this. Okay, now, the reason baptism was so important is because they, they were receiving new information that they didn't have before. And the fact is that human beings act in light of what we know. Um, if something is poisonous, we know not to eat that. Uh, if, if there's a knowledge that we have of something, we act in light of that thing. Um, if you are really good at like math or whatever, and someone offers you sort of, I've got this problem I'm trying to solve, you're going to step up because you know in... In light of your experience, your human experience, your tests that you've taken, everything you know about yourself, you know that you are good at this particular thing, and so you're going to step up and do it. We act in accordance to what we know about ourselves. We act in light of what we know about ourselves. So um, oftentimes we tend to think that God's first move with human beings is to give them a list of morals that they must obey, and then to give them a list of um, sort of religious things to do. So we think when someone comes to Christ, we say, now here's what you should do. Uh, you should, here's a list of, of morals that you now must obey. We're not, we're not going to lie anymore. You're not going to steal. You're not going to cheat. You're not going to do all these things. You're going to pay your taxes. You're going to be honest. And, and this is what, how you're going to live. That's God's first move is to, is to um, give you ethics and morals by which to live. And we think that's God's first move, and, and then we say, and God's, usually God's second move is, it's about religion. So now you're going to start going to church every Sunday. You're going to start tithing. You're going to start, um, you know, praying some prayers. We're going to give you, like, a, a passage to read every day and a book that you're going to flip through, like a little diary, and you're going to answer questions about what you just read, and we're going to call it your quiet time, and this is something Christians do, and you're going to do this every day, right? These are, this is what we tend to think of as, like, a, a, a new follower of, of Jesus. Like, this is God's first move. However, that is never in the New Testament God's first move. Not even in the Old Testament. God's first move is always about identity. It is about getting you to see who you are, how you should actually view yourself, and in light of that, how you should view other people. Because again, we act in light of what we know about ourselves, which is why some people who have a low view of themselves have a really hard time moving forward in life. Um, We know that people who... Who, who know that they are really capable of something, are confident and bold and move forward with this thing. You call on people and to say, you've always been good at this. I need your advice on this. And they're like, I'm in. If you ask another person, they may say, I'm not the right person to ask. We, we act in light of what we know about ourselves. Okay? If someone asks me a mathematical question, I'm usually going to just refer them to somebody else. I don't do math. However, if somebody starts talking about like first century history and stuff, I'm in. I'm going to act in light of what I know about myself. I know this subject. I'm going to act in light of that. So... Um, in 1964, there was actually a Harvard professor, um, what was his name? Robert Rosenthal. He did this experiment, um, to figure out what would happen if teachers were told that certain kids in their class were destined to succeed. So Robert Rosenthal took, um, a normal sort of IQ test and gave it out to a whole bunch of students. Um, they all took the test and they all passed the test back in. And before he gave it to the teachers, their teachers, he edited the results of the test And some of them, he gave grades which were off the charts. And he went to the teachers. He didn't tell the students. He went to the teachers and said, this student right here is a genius. They are brilliant in every way. You can expect great things of them. 
And then he gave them the tests. And, and uh, two years later, they went back and surveyed all the kids who had taken part in this survey. And the simple act of telling the, the, the teachers that the kids were geniuses and had high off-the-charts IQ, certain kids in the class, caused these kids to succeed at higher rates than all of the other kids in the class. Because the teacher herself was acting in light of what she knew about this other person. It is very, very important that the church be a community of people who look at people in the light of how God looks at people. Um, What we say and proclaim about other human beings is profoundly important. Um, The words we say about them, the way we speak about them, if we speak about them in ways that are degrading and otherizing, if we speak about them in ways that are, oh, that, that person is, is, is hated by God and damned to forever be tortured by God. You will treat that person in a specific way that you will not treat someone else. We have to understand how our words, when we talk about specific people, um, bring us to treat them and cause them to respond. When you talk about people in one way and you talk about people another way, you will receive two different responses. If you talk about people um, and you proclaim that people, that not only that God has nothing but absolute love and blessings and grace for them, not only that God has forgiven them and overlooks their shortcomings and failures, but also that God believes the same for everyone else around them. It will profoundly change the way that they move through the world as well as you do. Um, identity is an incredibly important thing. When you proclaim to people over and over that they are loved and that they are forgiven and grace is being showered upon them, they tend to move in a direction that reveals how they think about the fact that I am forgiven. I am, I am loved. I am blessed. I, I heard recently about um, a, a, um, a conversation that was going on in, in one of the AA meetings. And there was this conversation where um, they tend to be very theological and very philosophical. Um, because we're dealing with the meaning of life, truth, purpose, why and how we should grow and change. And there was a conversation where um, a man said, um, I don't know about you, but I, I think that God is absolutely crazy about me. That's what he says. And, and it doesn't seem like a big deal. It doesn't seem really profound. But if you think about it, it really is. Because oftentimes we tell people, you know, God loves you, but we say it in the way that it's like a Band-Aid, right? We're like, like, Nobody else likes you, but God loves you, right? Like, they broke up with me, and I'm all alone. And you go, well, God loves you, <laughs> right? Um, and it's just the way that we, that we talk to people about God's love. We're applying it like it's like a Band-Aid over a wound, okay? That view of God loves you and the view of God loves you from the recovering alcoholic who says, no, God's absolutely crazy about me, um, I believe one of these people is far more prone to do great things than the other. It's far more prone to be more loving, to, be, to grow more, to be released from the things that enslave them more. If you're using the love of God like a Band-Aid, sort of to say, no one likes me but God, um, as true as it is, I don't know your situation, as true as it is that God loves you, um, the... the the way in which you're using it oftentimes can hinder your understanding and your growth. Um, the love of God is not a band-aid that we 
that we provide to people who are in pain. It is something we cover people with. It is a way, is a posture that we have around them because we are the presence. The body of Christ is the presence of, the, of God in the lives of those people. And so it is something that we immerse them in. It is something that we show them and we prove to them. It is not just some word that we say to comfort and then move away. The comfort is in the fact that like, they know God loves them because they can tell God's people love them. Okay, um, And so the people end up living and acting in light of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, in light of what they know about themselves. Now, so Peter is proclaiming this sermon. He's saying, here's the history of God's people, and it has led up to this thing where Jesus is now ascended to the place of kingship over all the world, and there is one king, and there is no other king, and we follow this king. And they say, so what should we do? You should go underwater. Like, that's weird. What, baptism. Like, that's what he tells them. We call it baptism, and it sounds a lot more, like, religious. But the fact is, he told them, you should, baptism means, to baptize means plunge. You should jump into the water. That's what you should do. Jump in the lake. That's your response upon learning new information. And it seems like a really weird, interesting thing. However, um, let's look at it and look at the meaning of it, and maybe we'll see some things that maybe we haven't seen before. Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 3. Um, I've talked about this topic several times. They say if you talk about something three times, people will actually hold on to it and retain it. This is time number three. Okay, now, um, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophets, Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. So John the Baptist, this prophet guy who dresses crazy, he goes into Jerusalem and he proclaims, I'm going, are we all receiving like a, look at that. Oh, man. Okay. Scares me every time. If you have your headphones on when that happens, it hurts. Now, um, so, um, it's still going. I still, it's, it's, it's buzzing in my butt. Okay, here we go. I'll put that right there. Now, that's on the podcast. Awesome. Anyways, John the Baptist walks into Jerusalem. And he tells all these people, hey, guys, we're having a baptism service. And they're like, great. He goes, hold on. It's going to be in the wilderness. And you're like, why? There's a specific reason why John was in the wilderness doing a baptism. Um, We can read exactly where in John 128. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So Bethany is actually, if you you, uh, study the Old Testament, you can see this is the place where they entered into the land of Canaan, the promised land. This is where um, the, the Israelites, after wandering 40 years in the wilderness, after doing all this stuff, they come to the edge... And they cross through the Jordan River at Bethany and enter into the promised land. So what John is doing, John is the the son of a priest in the temple. The priests baptized people all the time. This is what they did. When Gentiles would come to worship in the temple, there were certain places they could go, but they couldn't even go to those places unless they had been ritually washed and cleansed first. So they would enter into what's called a mikvah. It was a specific thing. They would enter into it, um, and they would completely immerse themselves in water. They would come out the other side and walk up the stairs, and now they were ritually cleansed, put on new clothes, and they could enter into worship. Um, so it was for people becoming, like, like, like converting into Judaism, or it was for people who were um, uh, ritually impure in some way that required this level of purification. So John grew up Seeing his father baptize people in the temple, John grew up seeing behind the curtain, right? Like, 
he knows the temple is corrupt. He knows the stuff going on. Maybe some of you grew up like a pastor's kid, and you've seen behind the curtain, and you've seen like the spiritual elders of the community put on one face in front of everyone, and then like a whole other face behind people. Like um, I grew up in the church too. I would see this too. Um, and you see behind the curtain, and you're like, I, I think some of this is corrupt. I think there's some problems. Because the things they're saying and the things they're doing aren't quite matching up. And what the scriptures say about who we are and what they're saying about what we're supposed to be doing, they're not aligning, okay? And so John grows up seeing this. So John, when he's a, when he's a grown man, walks into the temple, and he walks into Jerusalem, and he says, we're doing a baptism. Meet me at Bethany. This has a specific meaning. Where he met them is right about here. Um, again, this is where the Israelites originally crossed into the new promised land, immersing themselves in the water and entering into the place God has called them to be. Incredibly symbolic, incredibly beautiful idea. They are entering into God's future for them, a place where God reigns and where they will live by. Of course, over and over again, they had failed at this whole thing. They had run the ship aground over and over and over. Idolatry after idolatry after idolatry. Exile, repentance, return. Exile, repentance, and return. Every single time the prophet's calling out, stop living this way, and they always do. And so the time of Christ, John the Baptist, he's in the wilderness. He's doing baptisms, not in the temple. He's doing it at Bethany. Why? Because he wants people to leave the promised land, to exile themselves, to meet him at the, at the water's edge, And repent together because the king is coming. The one, the the Davidic leader of of the people. The one that they have been waiting for. And so he brings them out. And one by one, they are completely immersed in the water. And they come out the other side. And then together, they enter back across the river into the promised land again and head down to Jerusalem. A new people living in a new way. You know how every January, when the calendar rolls over, you're like, it's January 1st. It's, it's 2018. Um, I am not doing that thing this year. All right, I'm going to eat differently. I'm going to drink differently. I'm going to get up, I'm gonna get up bef- before noon. I'm going to just live differently this time. And somehow you're energized to do that. Why? Because, because something changed? Because there was a, a moment where you can look at now your phone and you can see like the calendar has rolled over and it's new and it's changed. Here we are. Um, this is like this event on steroids, okay? So like the people are passing through the water and together you see this army of, of, of Jewish peasants walking back into the city anew. The people of God looked at in a new way. All the ways that they have failed before to be who they were supposed to be, dead, gone in the water. They are ritually hitting the reset button, all right? They are starting over. Okay, now, um, all of this is incredibly important because in order to be baptized by John, there was this understanding that like this, this old way is, is, is gone and this new way has come. How many of you, um, there's been a time, maybe even it's now, where you have wished, I, I, I wish I could just start over in the place where I live. I wish that somehow I could enter into my, my life, my city again. I have said things I never should have said. I have done things I never should have done. I have been, um, I, I, I've just told people exactly what was on my mind when I never should have done this. I have taken part in, in practices regularly that I never should have taken part in. I have made decisions I never should have made. I have lost jobs. I have lost my family. I have lost everything because of there's, 
particular things that I have done. And if I could go back in time and I could, and I could do this whole thing over again, I would circle a few dates on the calendar and I would tell myself, hey, don't get out of bed on that day. Just stay in bed. Your life will go in a completely different direction if you do not get out of bed on that day. I know people who have moved to other states and other cities as a way of restarting. And you ask them, why are you moving? And they say, I, I just need to start over in a place where nobody knows who I am. And, and there is nobody um, to, to bring up the things that I have done. People know me too much. Because familiarity, familiarity really does breed contempt. The longer you know people, the more you get to know about them. And the more you know people, the more liable you are to get offended by them. The longer you are in this church at Watermark, the more you will be offended by random people in this room. At some point, you will be terribly offended by something I say. Okay? Like, that is community. That is what happens. The difference is, um, the communities in which you are a part of in this world are, are, are not very forgiving. You are not allowed to change in most communities in the world. You are not allowed to change your mind on anything. You're not allowed to rethink anything because you have created this, like, this group, this bubble of people that are all making sure and heavily invested in you never changing anything. And if you do, there's this threat of excommunication from a friend's group, from a work environment, even from churches. Um, the baptism that the church should be offering is the gift of newness. That's what it is. It is at the heart of baptism is this message that people are allowed to change. People can change and we allow them and we encourage them to change. And we are with them. Okay? Um, That people are allowed to pause, to rethink, to repent, to change direction, to start over. And when they do, that stuff can be put away. The old can be dropped The new can be put on. And together we can walk into this new, better, more holy, healthier path together. And that we can look back over times when we were wildly different people. We could say, I was this person once. I mean, a lot of you have done a very good job of hiding pictures from your past. From like your your early 2000s emo face. (laughs) I have them too. Hair and hair. Like a rooster, multicolored. Now, girls' jeans. I was wearing those. We won't go there. We have this past that we have hidden. And we go to these new communities to get away from maybe who we have been. And we do everything we can to hide who we were. The church is the place where we can say, yes, this was me. This is who I was. This is what I did. I thought this way and I lived this way. And I will admit that. However... Now I know this, and I repent of that person. I, I confess that that's how I thought then, and this is how I think now. And here's the thing. Baptism is the ritual by which you put that person to death, and you rise to newness of life in Christ. It is an incredibly important ritual. Christians are a community of people that allow you to enter into the baptismal and to put your old self to death, to leave that person behind. They let that person go. And everyone needs that at some point in their life. Everyone needs that. Um, Because you grow, you become awakened to newness. Your eyes are suddenly open to who God is, uh, what you you mean to God and what the divine is doing all around you. And 
you somehow want to take part in this new thing that God is doing in the world, but you are fully immersed in the identity that you had before. And so you repent. And when you repent, there's something that you need. You need ritual. Ritual is incredibly important. We um, are human beings who regularly take part in rituals all the time. Um, We have rituals to celebrate when two people become a union. We have rituals to remember people who have passed on. There's a moment where we pause we stop everything and we reflect on the life of a human being that was, that is no longer. It's a funeral. And we mourn them and their passing. And we adjust our mindset to this new way of being in this whole different world because this person is gone. We have rituals to celebrate when people move from one grade to another grade. We have rituals to celebrate um, when, when we find out what what gender our baby is going to be. Like these rituals, we're always inventing new ones, right? And, and we're always, we have rituals um, at the end of sports games. Where, sports games, sports games. Where, that's right, I said it. I'm not a sports guy. I, I literally accidentally say sports games all the time. Um, so at the end of a series of sports games, somebody gets up on a, on a thing and they like give you a trophy, right? Like that's a ritual. What are you saying? It has come to an end. We're going to start fresh next year. But right now, we recognize you because you did the thing really good, better than the other people doing the thing. Now, those are rituals. We will never admit it, but those are some of the most important rituals in our lives. Like all of these things that we do, these are rituals. They have meaning, okay? In the, in the Old Testament, you see something happening all the time where people are, are, are journeying somewhere and God does something to change the direction of an entire group of people. He... he intercedes in some way to change something and the people are standing there in this new thing and they're like, look what God just did. Yes, that was incredible. And they're affirming this amazing thing that God revealed to them and God did for them. And they say, we should do something. What should we do? Um, Let's get a bunch of rocks and bring them over here and stack them up right here. Why? Because this is where it happened. I have to remember this spot. Don't, you stand right here. Don't move. That's an important spot. That's where God did something, okay? We're going to go get a bunch of rocks, and you bring the rocks, and you stack them up about yay high. Like, now what? Kill that animal. That one right there. Kill it. And they kill the animal, and they bring it over, and they lay it. They cut it and lay it on the altar, and they, they burn it, and, and the smoke rises up to the heavens where they believed God was dwelling, right? And, and it's a way of saying, like, thank you. This is for you. And now there's people who live around this pile of rocks that they call an altar, and it's, it signifies that God did something there. And the people who live around this altar, one of the jobs that they have is to tell the story of what happened here. And so you're traveling through. Maybe you're like a, a Jewish family and you're traveling through the Middle East at some, and there's a pile of rocks. And you say, hold on, that's not normal. That's not natural. Something happened here. And you're going to go knock on a door and you're going to ask, what happened here? What did Yahweh do? I have to know. And they're going to say, oh, gather around the altar. Let me tell you a tale of what God did, okay? And they tell you, and everyone's weeping and rejoicing because they just learned something new about their God because there was a ritual that was done and this thing happened and it stays with them. So when people get married, what do we call it? We call it the marriage altar. Why? Because we are making a a memory, solidifying it in our brains. This is the day that we celebrate the love of these two people. Really nothing changes for the couple, okay? Like they... 
in, in, in reality, they are, they are bound to each other. They have, he has received her. She has received him. They are bound up in each other's past, present, and future. They, uh, in, in their hearts and in the eyes of God, they have intertwined their lives in a way that says we are married. However, every culture has this way of signifying, of saying like, well, we need to, we need to proclaim this somehow. So what are we going to do? We're going to have a ceremony. And so we're going to dress up. And everyone's going to smell really good and get haircuts. And there's going to be flowers just everywhere, just, just dead plants everywhere. And then we're, going to, we're all going to come and, and we're going to do this thing where we're going to make an altar in our minds. And every time we come back here, we're going to remember, you know what happened here? There was a wedding here. Remember who it was? Oh, yeah, it was them. And you're going to say, that was a day that changed their lives. That was a day like... like that their lives took a new direction and now maybe they have a, a family and grandkids and they, they went on to build this huge thing. But that's the altar in your mind. That is the day. So rituals in human history are incredibly important. We, we mark transitions in life by rituals. So the, for the Jewish people, baptism was already an important ritual. It was something, like I said, it's something that they did all the time. When somebody needed a... Um, some kind of ritual cleansing to enter into the presence of God anew because they couldn't enter into the presence of God before. And so they would do different things. Um, uh, it was sort of like this. The person would, being baptized would, would cut their nails and their hair. Oftentimes they would just shave their head. Um, they would undress completely, and we don't do that. Um, and the, the baptismal, the bath, would, would be measured to a specific uh, measurement of 40 say, as they called it, um, and it's like a very, really important number in the lives of the people. Maybe we'll talk more about that at the, next, at the baptism service. Um, and every part of their body would be submerged, would, would touch the water, every part of them. And they would come up out of the water. And after they came up out of the water, there's some fascinating things that the rabbis would write about that would happen. Um, so the effect of the baptism was that it was, it was, in their minds, it was this complete regeneration of the human person. Um, they were referred to as a child just born, a child that is one day old. Um, all their sins would be canceled because God couldn't punish someone who had just been born that day, right? They hadn't done anything, right? That was some other person, and they're dead, and this new person is here. And on top of that, um, a man's child born... Um, what, a, man, a man's child, even if it was like his third child or whatever, after he was baptized, he would refer to him as my firstborn, but like a, in a spiritual way, like my firstborn child here, even if it was like the third, fourth, fifth, whatever. Um, to them, it was this really, it signified something incredibly profound and important. And it was like a, a fresh, clean slate. And so when Paul writes to the Jewish people in, 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 in the Roman church, and he tells them, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. They hear that and they understand it. They're saying, oh, I get that. I understand what you're talking about with baptism and how it applies with Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection. I, I get that. The Jewish people get it. However, they're not the only audience in the church in Rome. There's some, there's some Greeks there as well. Uh, Gentile, Roman uh, Roman people. They're actually the majority of the people there. Now, they had their own traditions that were very much like baptism. They didn't call it baptism because it, it wasn't about water, but they had these rituals that they would go through where they would enter into like the worship of a god. It was all centered around these ancient theaters, and there would be these plays that they would do, and they called them passion plays. We, you've heard of passion plays. Like, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a story where uh, someone is killed and then buried and then comes back to life. There are... Um, 
countless numbers of them throughout history. And the Jesus story, we tend to call it a passion play. They've called it that for a long, long time. However, um, the Gentiles, the Greek religions, they were called, uh, there was a specific type of Greek religion called a, a, um, a mystery religion. And they would, they would sort of celebrate this religion ritually by coming and watching these plays that would have like this specific lighting and music and they would create fog and it would be costumes and they would go through like the story of their God who was killed in battle with another God and then rose again. Um, and you weren't allowed to see these plays unless you were, um, unless you had gone through a specific type of initiation to worship the, um, the mystery God. All right. Now, um, basically this would entail you signing up for something where you would attend some classes and you sort of would be indoctrinated and learn all kinds of things about the God and the story and all the meaning. Oftentimes it was political. It was nationalistic. It was about why their people are greater than other people because their God is greater than other gods. And, and so all the other, were, all the other nations would fall eventually when they spread. Um, however, it's not just learning about their gods that they, would, that they would take part in. They would go through a ritual sort of death they would do something, um, and we have several different examples of how this went. One of them, a specific one, was where a, a guy would be buried all the way up to his neck and would pronounce this decree that their God is now the ruler of, of the lands and stuff. And then they would dig him out, <laughs> and they'd bring him out, and then he would be considered a newborn baby that would literally eat now baby food. Like, he would, he would eat a meal of, like, milk and, like, I don't know, period fruit, who knows, um, whatever they ate back then in, uh, for babies. Um, so for them, they would, they would, this thing, they would be pronounced renatus in eternum, which means reborn for eternity. So when Paul is writing to the Gentile converts who came out of these religions into Christianity, and he talks to them about what it means to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus, what it means to be buried with Christ. They understand this even in their own context. It has specific meaning. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, uh, we too may live a new life. And so they understand the burial references. They understand sort of the baptism references. They get it. Um, for them, for these people, the ritual of baptism made perfect sense. There was no question about why would we be plunged in water as a ritual. For them, it was all about a fresh, new start. Who they were is gone. Who they are now. This whole new way of thinking, this whole new way of being is now what they will surround their life with. For the early Christians, baptism was a ritual of newness in a person's life. The apostles themselves could not have imagined um, someone entering into salvation and affirming the salvation they have received without responding in some way. With baptism, usually baptism. The apostles assumed that everybody upon hearing this news would want to be baptized. Okay? Now, all of this is exactly why you, you cannot baptize yourself. Okay? This is an important point. You can't just wake up one day and say, I need to change my life. Um, you know what? I'm going to go be baptized and then run down to the river just cannonball in and come out. I'm baptized. I'm good. Baptism is a gift of the community. It is something that we give you collectively as the body of Christ. It is, you are baptized by the church in the community uh, and in the presence of other sinners and doubters and failures and people who don't measure up. It's a gift. It's a new start. It's a new way of being known. As the body of Christ gathers around the people who are being baptized, um, this is what we offer them. 
a brand new start, the person that they were, we watch that person go into the water and it starts off as a funeral. And you say goodbye to this person with their identity and the things that they've carried and all the weight and the guilt and the shame and everything that they were before. And when they come up out of the water, you're welcoming this person anew. You look at them and you say, all the ways that you have offended me before, all the things that you have done, all the, the identity that you have, um, it's gone. It is buried with Christ. And this person standing before me um, is this new creation. And before we do the baptism, uh, there's usually a microphone we have here and people can get up and they can talk and tell their stories and say, here's, here's who I was. Here's where I came from. This has been my view of me because of these things that have happened. And I stand here today and here's the person that I want to be. Here's the person I feel God is calling me to be. Here's what God is calling me to take part in. And you proclaim this to the church. And we listen. And we affirm it. And we say, as your community, we want to help you become this person. And you enter into the water. And you go down and there's a funeral. And you come up out of the water a new person. And it's amazing because people get out of the tank and they come walking over to the people who were there to celebrate baptism with them. And they hug them and their baptism gets all over them. Right? <laughs> Like, yes, we embrace this and we are with you. Um, it's an incredible ceremony where people stand up and say, I am done. I'm done with who I was and I'm entering anew into the path that God has for me. And because of what Jesus has done and the, 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 the body of Christ that he's put here um, and the work that he's done through his death, burial, and resurrection, I want to receive newness of life. And we join you. And we allow this to happen. And we take part in it. And then one day when you start slipping back into that old person, you're like, wait, what are you doing? Well, and this was always so fulfilling to me. You're like, first off, that was never you. This is you. And we are with you. And we are going to drag you into your sanctification. All right? We're going we're to help you become that person that you declare that God wants you to become. Um, it's remembrance constantly. Um, the great Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, he, uh, he, used, he used to struggle with depression and thoughts of his failures and the terrible things that he had done. And he writes that, that when he felt like this, he used to stand in front of the mirror and look at himself and say, Martin, you have been baptized. There is no reason for you to dwell on these things that you have been. And it's a, it's a, it's a conscious decision to live in light of what he now knows about himself. Um, Whoever you were when you go into the water is gone. It's put to death with Jesus on that cross. It means you no longer, your past is held against you. Um, there should be no skepticism if you see a friend whom you knew. Maybe you've fallen apart in your friendship and your relationship and you see them being baptized. There is no skepticism in your heart. You don't watch them and say, uh-huh, I've seen this before. I've seen them try to kick this before. And this is how it's going to go. No. There's no place for that in the church. We look at them and they come up out of the water and we applaud them and we embrace them as this new person and we start fresh with them. Um, there are not many communities in the world where this is a possible thing. To change, to actually change. Um, and it doesn't mean that, that, it doesn't mean that it won't be difficult. There is no mystical thing that happens. It's a communal thing. It is, it is a day when you pause and and receive it. It means when you feel the weight of the accusations of this world and, your, and, and their attempts to name and enslave it in you again, you remember your baptism. God doesn't see you like they see you, and we choose to see you as God sees you. 
That's how we choose to see you. So maybe you're here today and, and you need this reminder. Maybe you're here today and, and, and you, have, you have seen something in a new way that you cannot unsee and something that you want to move towards and you, you, you cannot do anything but move towards it. I want to invite you to be baptized. I want to invite you um, to take part in the baptism service that we are offering you. Um, to put that old self to death. To, to repent fully with everything that you are, publicly proclaiming that you are a citizen of, of the kingdom of God and that, that you are going to lock arms with us as we work to bring the kingdom of God into this world. Uh, maybe you're here today and you're imprisoned by your old identity, the things that you've hid down deep inside yourself. And we, the church, the body of Christ, we want to give you this as a gift, a fresh start, a new name. We want to baptize you. It's a beautiful ceremony. Um... I've baptized people who were getting married and needed a clean, fresh slate, um, who wanted to enter into union together under God and completely change their lives, and it's beautiful. I've baptized people who are coming out of drug addictions, alcohol addictions, um, who this was the first step to them turning their life around. I've baptized people who um, have decided that, that their calling is to go somewhere and do something sacrificial and incredible for the kingdom of God. And this was their entry into this proclamation. I baptized people who have completely shifted how they view God and everything, and they've moved from this very specific view of God into this other thing that is life-giving and beautiful, and, and we've baptized them into the community. I've, met, I, I've baptized people who, um, who are moving from a place of, of doubt into into specific belief, a choice to like, I'm moving forward in this. And we want to be here for you. We want to offer you this gift. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your journey. We want to hear about your future. And we want to help walk you into it. And so right now, we're actually going to pause and um, uh, do another ritual, communion. Our communion servers, you guys can go and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, if this is for you, if this is something you want, if you want to be baptized, um, I, I, want to, I want to invite you to do this. Um, we have a, a, a webpage set up for it, watermark.tampa slash events, I believe. If you have questions about baptism, you want to email me, my email is tommy at watermarktampa.com. Email me. We can talk um, about it. And um, if you think it's for you, reach out. Um, there's already a lot of people already signed up to be baptized, and it's going to be a beautiful morning. So you're not going to be alone. The whole point of this is community. And we want to cheer you on and be a part of your, your new start and your fresh, your fresh journey forward. So our, our community servers are going to come and, and uh, bring the elements and, and come on up. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes um, to remember how, how we believe healing enters into the world. The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was poured out for you. Um, it was a thing done out of love. I have a desire for you to find wholeness, um, a desire for healing for the world. And by taking communion, we are affirming that this is how people are made whole again, by us entering into this and also offering ourselves to be broken and poured out for other people, however that looks. If it's service, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's, if it's financial, pouring ourselves out for other people, if it is um, giving our time, our talents, our treasures, whatever it is that, that we can do to allow ourselves to sacrificially be poured out for the world around us so that they can find healing, um, whatever it is, um, we lift that up to God. Okay? Let's spend some time in prayer. Let's take communion. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Um, I ask that you would help us today 
if we need to take a step towards wholeness, that you would make that obvious in our eyes. Thank you for this place and, uh, and the hope that you've given so many of us through, through this community. Be with us now as we take communion. Help us to repent, reshape our minds about this world, and to follow you in your name. Amen. Take some time and talk to Jesus.